Well, thanks, Daniel. It's good to be here together. I'm going to move a little bit more here in the center. Um, just want to remind you guys, as we have now entered into kind of the second week of our new masking protocol, that um, if you'd like, during the sermon, feel free, uh, while you're just sort of sitting passively and breathing, uh, that you can remove your mask for uh, if, you, if you so desire. And then kind of during the other portions of the service, as we're speaking and talking or heading back out, uh, that's when we want to keep our masks back on. But um, from my perspective, it's great to see you guys' face. It's been almost a year since I've been able to see anybody's face from up here. There's been a lot of things that we have missed out on this last year, as Meg McClure just even reminded us. And one of the things at least our family missed out on uh, kind of this last summer was um, the regular event that we have of watching American Ninja Warrior. How many others in this room watch American Ninja Warrior? A few, maybe? Okay, mostly, mostly kids or those who have uh, kids um, like us. It's, it's a great show to watch, particularly in the summertime when it's airing. Um, I'm always amazed and love watching it by what they can do, but I'm also drawn in by the, by the different stories that they always tell on reality TV shows, right? Um, a few summers ago, they had a particularly compelling story. It was one of the contestants, one of the regular ninja warriors named Kenny Niamatola had a daughter named Hazel who was born with an incurable kidney disease. And so um, Kenny decided to run in order to raise awareness in order to maybe find a potential donor for her. He had all of his information on a t-shirt. I think he had some signs made. Uh, there was an interview compelling and just asking if anybody uh, would be willing. And through the show, a random fan, um, a woman by the name of Amy who had never met Kenny, had never met Hazel or any of the members of their family decided to go ahead, to go under the knife, and to donate her kidney so that Hazel might live. And why do I tell you all that? Because of what Amy did, Hazel was given a future. Amy gave a down payment of sorts for a future for Hazel. And in much the same way, Paul is saying that Jesus' life, his death, and particularly his resurrection are a down payment on our future. And I want for us to look through that lens at 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. We're taking a short break from our, our study on Ephesians, and we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15. And it's through that lens of Jesus' down payment that I want for us to look at this scripture together. So if you would, please turn with me now to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to have a couple different verses, verses 3 through 8, and then we're going to skip down to verse 20 through 26. Would you read along with me? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all join me as we pray? Father, we do thank you. We thank you for what you have given to us in your scriptures. Lord, we thank you for the promises that are true for us in Jesus. And we pray that as we consider your word this morning, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hands and feet to do your will. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as we read through the passage, we see that Paul is trying to remind the Corinthians of what is of first importance. That's the language he kept using uh, at the beginning of the passage, that the Corinthians had almost lost sight of the importance of the entirety of the whole of the gospel. For any number of reasons, they aren't bothered about whether or not the resurrection of Jesus had truly happened. They seem, they seem to want Jesus' salvation, but almost like how you want a burrito from a burrito chain like Chipotle, right? You want it your way, right? I don't particularly like onions, so I'm going to leave that off. I definitely want some chicken, but I'm not really in the mood for bean and corn, right? Like they are crafting their own version of a salvation burrito, The way that this works for us in the church is that we are okay with this idea that that God would stand in our place to take the punishment of sin. But even if Jesus is raised from the dead, we don't really understand what that does for us. So we sort of treat the resurrection like a little bit, like like a side of guacamole. It's something that maybe we want, but it's not really necessary to the whole package. In reality, we are very similar to the church in Corinth. For most of us, we've lost sight of what is of first importance. By trying to create our own burrito of salvation, we have inevitably created our own kind of hierarchy of importance. And somehow the resurrection has begun to be treated like a side item. So this morning, I want for us to talk about our tendency to treat the resurrection as extra, I want for us to look into our hearts to really examine why we, don't, why we don't see the importance of Easter like Paul is talking about here. And then we're going to look at the hope that we have through Christ's resurrection. So first, I want to look at our muted understanding and interest of the resurrection. And secondly, the power that we have through Christ's resurrection. So first, our muted interest. We don't really talk about death. We live in a culture where we don't talk much about death. Blaise Pascal, the famous mathematician and theologian who lived a long time ago, recognized it to be true even then in that culture. He wrote, being unable to cure death, wretchedness, and ignorance, men have decided in order to be happy not to think about such things, not to think about death at all. And he's right. 
Death is one of the few things that we all know is inevitable. It's even more inevitable than the coming of tax day here this next week. But in our culture, we don't really spend the time talking about it. And there are many different, ra- many different reasons for it. Right? Thankfully, many of us don't encounter someone dying or on their deathbed until much later in life. About 200 years ago, one-third of children didn't live into adulthood. And even if a child was lost, most families encountered, sorry, even if a child wasn't lost, most families encountered death much earlier in in their lives. It was something everyone grew up around. Because of all the medical advances that we've experienced in the past hundred years, our experience with death is vastly different from even our great-grandparents. These advancements have been incredible, But, but they haven't rid the world of the problem of death. They've merely delayed it. As a result, though, we're always looking for the next advancement that might delay it a little bit further down the road, right? In fact, y'all can Google this. Some of the, the, the Silicon Valley executives have donated well over billions of dollars to different companies and ventures that are trying to solve the problem of death in some really strange ways. Right? Or at least they're trying to combat some of the effects of aging. Well, in many ways, we are no different than the thousands of people who've gone before us, the Ponce de Leons who are going on search of the fountain of youth, the fabled fountain of youth. We've begun to think of ourselves as invincible, as having already achieved immortality or very near it through our own technologies and our own efforts. And, And with all of the medical advancements, death has become this taboo topic As if ignoring it in discussion and ignoring it in our minds is somehow going to continue to allow us to search for this immortality or to kick it down the road a little bit further. Anthropologist Jeffrey Gorer notes um, this shift in the taboo topics of our culture. He says that whereas copulation has become more and more mentionable in our culture, death has become more and more unmentionable by a natural means. There's actually an inverse relationship between our culture's willingness to talk about sex and our unwillingness to talk about death. The ugliness of death is mostly hidden from us. It's it's behind operating room doors or um, behind or beneath the appearance or the veneer of of a mortician's very good work. Even business, um, business journals note that we struggle to talk about death. As, as it's become more and more important to, to treat the whole human in the business place. The Harvard Business Review noted that managers, they know how to celebrate births and birthdays of employees and to celebrate great milestones in the lives of their employees. They even know how to grieve a little bit when um, an employee's going through some illness. But everybody struggles with what they call a conspiracy of silence surrounding death. And that's something that we all experience, that when nobody talks about it, we become and feel isolated when we're going through the death of a loved one. That's what they've recognized. So my question for us is this. Is it possible then that our view of the resurrection and its importance is muted because we never really let ourselves see just how much of an enemy death actually is? 
In our passage, Paul calls death an enemy. God not only views sin as an enemy, he views death as an enemy. It is an intrusion into his creation. It's almost like a cancer that has entered in and is growing and is festering. And if death is as bad as the Bible says that it is, and we who've experienced the death of a loved one know that that to be true, then God's victory over death is that much more amazing than we ever could imagine. And that's what Paul is writing about to the Corinthians. He's saying that the resurrection is foundational to their salvation. If death hasn't been defeated, then there is no salvation. Our view of the resurrection, perhaps, you know, yes, maybe it's muted because of our own interaction or lack thereof of death, but there's also some other reasons as well. First, we may be pretty content with the life that we have, and so we don't really see the need for a new life, a a, a life that is to come in the future resurrection. But also, we may have an overly spiritual view of salvation, Most of Western culture, intentionally or not, has kind of adopted elements of Greek philosophy. And as as Clay uh, very succinctly um, helped us to see it last week, the essence of that is basically this. Physical things are bad, spiritual things are good. And we've sort of adopted that into our culture. So that while death is sad to many of us in our culture, we try to tell ourselves Different things like, well, they're in a better place now, right? Or that they're free from all their bodily pain. And so even Christianly, we can begin to think that heaven, right, our loved one's soul being with Jesus right now is the very end of the biblical story. Therefore, that people getting to heaven is the ultimate end of God's saving work. And if that's the thought, then what does the resurrection matter If we were always supposed to be with God in spirit, in heaven, then why was Jesus in the body, in the flesh, raised from the dead? Why was Jesus resurrected? And why in the body did he appear to over 500 witnesses over the course of 40 days? Well, at the very least, if the story is to end with our being in, in spirit with God in heaven then the resurrection is merely proof of his divine power. And it is that, right? It's a miracle demonstrating that nothing rules over him, not even death. But if that's all that it is, it fails to be as significant as what Paul is saying here. It fails to be of first importance. Of course, the answer is that heaven is not the end of the story. It is a part of the story, don't get me wrong, but it's not the end of the story. Jesus promises, yes, that until he comes again, we who die in Christ are with him in paradise. But there's more to his saving work. The good news gets even better. When I proposed to my wife um, well over 15 years ago, uh, she had just returned from studying and living in Russia uh, at the time. And and my wife loves all things Russian. She teaches uh, a lot of Russian literature now. Um, So I had this great idea that 
um, that I was going to hide actually a fake ring at the bottom of a series of Russian nesting dolls. Um, and I was going to give that to her, and then while she's sort of fiddling with it, trying to work her way down, that then I'd pull out the real ring and, and, get, and have time to get down on one knee and, and go. And obviously, you know, everything went off like a success, and we got married. Um, but the point of me telling you this is actually to reimagine that event. Okay, what if, as I had given my wife that initial gift of the Russian nesting dolls and the fake ring, she had stopped with that and thought, well, that's a good gift. She likes Russian nesting dolls. I got her a pretty good looking one, right? And, and even the fake ring that I bought looked pretty legit. What if she thought, well, this is awesome. I'm content with just this. Well, then she would have missed out on, on the real thing. She would have missed out on the engagement ring, you know, that, that a future pastor bought. Um, and not only that, though, but she would have missed out on actually the point of the ring, right? We're not so different when we focus only on the gift of heaven. We feel this muted need of the resurrection. We're, we're looking at a good gift, but we're missing out on the greatness of salvation that Jesus has brought for us. And when we minimize the resurrection, we actually feel a muted need of God's saving work. But how many of us, when we, when we actually take a little bit of time for the weight of last year to hit, how many of us have truly felt the weight of death over the last year? Maybe, maybe some of us really have. We've lost people this last year, whether to COVID or to other things. Perhaps... Quarantine, though, made it difficult for you to grieve this year. Perhaps it made it really difficult for you to feel the weight of death. How many of us attended a funeral over Zoom this year? It's hard to truly feel the grief in those moments. But when we feel the weight of death, when we intuitively understand what Paul is talking about to the Corinthians, when he calls death an enemy... I think we can begin to see just how important the resurrection actually is. Because death is an enemy. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. But that's what makes all of Christ's work so important. All of it. His life, his death, and his resurrection. For Christ has dealt with death. It is his final victory. And it is that a victory that he has achieved through his resurrection. So let's look now at what God has accomplished for us in the resurrection. Well, in the early part of the passage, Paul reminds the Corinthians of this thing of first importance, the elements that are foundational. And he does so by reciting this familiar creed. This was likely a creed that they would have said multiple times that the Corinthians themselves would have known. And so Paul is drawing them back to this creed. He's drawing them back and reminding them of the central tenets of the faith because these central tenets are the central tenets of what Jesus did and what he accomplished. His saving work didn't finish on the cross only to have the resurrection serve as a validation that the, of the real stuff that he had already accomplished. No, the resurrection is an integral part of his saving work. We, by faith, are united to all of Christ. And thus what he has done becomes true for us. All that he has done. What does that mean? 
that means that we have died with Christ. That means that we have received his righteous life. And that means that one day, someday in the future, we too will rise from the dead as Jesus rose from the dead. All of that is true for us in faith. So imagine for a minute, this is a different imagination uh, exercise. Imagine for a minute, and it actually gets a little more absurd. Um, Imagine for a minute that you were married to Jeff Bezos, right? Um, One of the richest men in the world. In that marriage, everything that he has is yours, right? Well, okay, now back it up a little bit. Now reimagine that you got married to him at an early age, well before he had ever made it in business, while he was still struggling, and that somehow there was a separation of that unity prior to his ever making any of, uh, of Amazon come to fruition. Well, we would have missed out on all that he had made. Okay, well, apart from the selfishness of that illustration, the point is this, in much the same way, When we think of the resurrection as this wholly separate thing of what Christ has done for us, we separate ourselves or we divorce ourselves from the totality of all that Jesus Christ has achieved for us. We forget that the resurrection, it's not just for him, it's not just to prove something about him, but it is actually for you and for me. He lived for us, he died for us, and he rose again for us. So it's not just the cross that is good news, although it is amazing news. The resurrection too is good news. It is great news. Yes, it demonstrates God's power, but it is also a down payment of sorts for our future. Paul writes that Jesus is the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. That means that Jesus is the down payment on the contract of our resurrection. He has guaranteed our future resurrection. He is the earnest money on the deal that has purchased us back from death. Yes, death is scary when we actually take a look at it. Right? We'd, rather, we'd rather think of ways to extend our lives than, in, than confront our own mortality or we try to ignore the topic altogether. But Jesus' resurrection is the spring sunshine that melts the frosts of our fear. Because he has defeated death, we who are united to him by faith are guaranteed that even if we die before he comes again, It is merely as if we have fallen asleep, as Paul says. Because we too will rise from the dead. We too will be resurrected as Christ was resurrected. We too will come back when Jesus brings the new heavens and the new earth. And we too will walk around as he himself did after he was resurrected. So not only though is Jesus' resurrection good news for us. It's also good news for the whole world. Yes, Jesus is our guaranteed down payment of resurrection, but he is also the first fruits of a new creation. He's the beginning of God making all things new. He's that very kind of first flowering of a new springtime that is coming. The resurrection is the beginning of God's promise that the lamb and the lion will be able to lay down together. 
He's the beginning of the promise that God is righting every wrong in this world. So picture it. Picture our future. That as you who are united to Christ, you will not remain dead when he comes again. But not only that, as you are raised, you will encounter a new creation. A new creation where the flowers somehow smell a little bit better where the mountains and the oceans are even more glorious than they already are, and that somehow everything that is wrong in this world will be righted. Sin will have been dealt with. Death will have been dealt with. Sadness itself will disappear, and every tear will be wiped from our eyes. That is the new creation that Jesus is bringing. And if that is the future for those of us who are in Christ, then what is there to fear? The fear of death in light of the resurrection diminishes. It's no wonder that at the very end of this chapter that Paul himself says, Oh death, where is your sting? In light of the resurrection, death has no more sting. So let's apply this a little bit. For some of y'all who are here this morning, you're trying to get to know Jesus. You don't know him or you're not entirely sure what you think about him. And if that's you this morning, I would just urge you, I would urge you to place your hope in him. That no matter how bad the bad news is, no matter how bad sin is in your life or in the lives of those around you, no matter how bad death and sadness is, it is only Jesus Christ that will bring a true and real hope. Place your faith and your hope in him. And for those of us who are Christians this morning, I want to challenge us to become a people of hope. We should be be changed by this good news. As, As death loses its sting in our lives, we should be modeling to the world what it looks like to be a people of the resurrection. It doesn't mean that we're a people who don't grieve. That's not what I mean. Even Jesus himself grieved the loss of his friend Lazarus. Nor does it mean that we should be reckless in light of the resurrection, like that we can kind of do anything because we're going to come back one day someday. That's not what I mean either. No, being a people of hope means that in a world that's so deathly afraid of death or so eager to avoid grief, that we are to be a people of reasoned hope. We can be assured of our future and so we can live in light of that now. N.T. Wright Um, a famous theologian and the former bishop of the Church of England writes this in one of his, uh, in in this amazing book called Surprised by Hope. If you haven't read it, I would really uh, urge that you do. He says this. He says, Easter was when hope in person surprised the whole world by coming forward from the future into the present. What he means is that Jesus' resurrection is a move move from the future into the very present so that we can see what our future will be. That we can be assured of what our future actually is. And this hope should change how we live here and how we live now. We should live as people of hope. Not just waiting passively for the future resurrection, but actively pursuing the renewal of the whole world. We should be people of the hope, people of hope in the midst of our own struggles, as hard as that may be. Depending on whatever the struggles that we are going through, we are still to be a people of hope. 
We should be a people of hope as we engage in the struggles of the world. And one thing of more practical importance is that we should be actively seeking to bring the, the, the future reality of the kingdom of God into the here and now. That means that we should pursue justice and mercy, that we should pursue grace and peace. We should be busy in the world fighting death alongside our Savior who made the victory guaranteed, not so that we can achieve our own immortality like some of the people from, uh, you know, from um, uh, the, the place where all the technology, what's that called? I can't remember. Not like them, right? but so that we can glorify God and his work in the world. Right? We should be feeding the hungry, caring for the sick, and protecting the vulnerable who so easily get run over in this world. We are called to live as people of the resurrection, bringing resurrection hope to all corners of the, of, of the earth, but at the very least to the corners of Houston or to our neighborhood. Let me conclude with this. We have a guaranteed future for us. Christ who has been resurrected is the secure down payment of that very future. For as we, as we say every week prior to communion, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And because of that, we have this amazing hope. A hope that in the future, there is no longer condemnation for me as a sinner. And a hope where even death itself has been defeated. Thanks be to God. Would you all pray with me? Father, we do thank you. But we thank you that you have dealt with sin and that you have dealt with death. And Father, we look forward to the day when Christ will not only have defeated death by his resurrection, but he will destroy it to make all things on earth as they are in heaven. Father, I pray that you would give us the power of your spirit that we might go out to be people of the resurrection, to be hope in a world that is hopeless, to be your light in a, in a world of darkness. We pray that all of that would be unto your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.